Okay, um, last week we started in Genesis and had the introduction and covered the first chapter. And what I'd like to do tonight, in fact, each time, I'll try to introduce a, a few books that you can get on record if you're interested in, in looking at them or getting them on your own. Uh, this one here that we introduced last week, the ancient records and the structure of Genesis, this is one of the finest recent works uh, that I'm aware of as far as showing how it's actually put together. And in fact, uh, I'm buying a number of these to give out. It does a real good job of handling the documentary hypothesis. And remember, the documentary hypothesis was posed in the last century by scholars who really do not believe in the inspiration of the Bible. And they were trying to show that uh, Genesis was written not by one author, but by plurality of authors over a period of years. And sometime after Babylonian captivity of the Jews, it was actually put together in the form that we have it now. And it does a very good job here of showing that part of the problem is, is because of the ways in which conservatives have actually taught Genesis through the years, in that some have taught it as if the Holy Spirit just dictated all that information to Moses. And when we go back and we look at it, we can actually see that there are different personalities in different vocabularies in Genesis, and yet we see a same personality beginning with Exodus all the way through. And so now we know how Genesis is broken down, and we can actually break it apart into the tablets that Moses actually copied from. And so now a scholarship would recognize that uh, Moses had access to all these tablets going right back to Adam, that what you're actually reading is eyewitness material, and Moses is putting this together in the same way that Luke put his information together, and then, of course, he is the author of those things that he experienced in himself. But that also changes uh, some possibilities on several things we look at. For example, when, when you read about the flood and when we discuss it, it maybe takes on a little different perspective, maybe now, I say, that if you recognize that, uh, that this is not something that God is saying directly uh, to Moses, but this is something that Noah and his sons saw and experienced with their own eyes, and you're getting the record as they wrote it, and the same with some of the, some of the other events, and we'll notice some particulars on that when we get into the discussion of the flood. But suffice it to say that we can break down the uh, tablets, we can show the different authorship in the various tablets, and we can see how they're compiled and put into one place. We can show how the, the material there is eyewitness material by the individuals involved. And in this book, uh, he brings us up to date on the various archaeological discoveries that have uh, gone into the ancient records and showed how ancient records were carried and put together and what we have in Genesis is really nothing unique. It's the same type of writing and recording of history and the handling down of information on family tablets as we have in other ancient records. And it was really the uncovering of these other records and deciphering them and showing how they were put together and how they determined who the author was and all that helped us in our understanding of Genesis and how it's put together. But anyway, I'll get, uh, this is one that, uh, I've got some more here, I think. I don't know if I've already given them out. I think I gave you one, didn't I? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Steve, did I give you one, Tim? No. This one here? Yeah. I thought I gave both of you one. You gave us one to read, but I've not read it yet. You, oh. gave, you gave us one together. Okay. I wanted several of these, but it's, except, it's exceptionally good. All right. This one here, Old Testament Light by <coughs> Lamsa. I think you have this, mm -hmm. don't you, Mark? <coughs> that uh, Lamsa, of course, is Syrian himself. He's fluent in the language and the customs in that area. And this is not a verse-by-verse -verse commentary of the Old Testament, but he simply begins in Genesis, and then anywhere that, that not a knowledge of the customs, uh, the language, and the idioms of that particular area would throw light on the information that we have in the Bible in our English translation, he brings that into focus. And he's got some very, very, very good information here. And what makes it even more interesting is that uh, much of the figurative language and the idioms, and this is important because some of these idioms have been taken as literal uh, by English readers who were not familiar with the fact that they were idioms in that particular vernacular. And so he bring, points this out that even at this present day, uh, those same idioms are still used and the same customs still in vogue. Uh, this book here, Why We Believe in Creation, Not in Evolution, uh, by John Meldew, is, I think, exceptionally good. 
uh, in the fact that it's not, not only has some very good material, but it's written on a simple way. It's a little different than some of the books in that uh, more than spending a lot of time refuting evolution, uh, he spends his time giving positive evidence for creation. And he deals with uh, uh, the, all the complexities of the animal kingdom and in the, in the process of discussing the complexities in the animal kingdom and in all of nature, he also deals in the mathematics uh, from a probability standpoint. In other words, that in order for this to happen, given all of these particulars that were involved, what is the probability that you could have got it to happen once, and then what is the probability that you could have duplicated it as much, many times, and it's very good from that standpoint. Another, some of the other type of information he has in it that's interesting that uh, uh, here's an example of uh, a comment on some of the history at the time that Moses wrote. He said when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books to us, the Hindus held this view that the earth in relationship to the universe, that the earth is born by four elephants standing on a turtle's back. And so one thing he goes on to point out is that in order to fully appreciate Moses and those, back, those books, we have to leave uh, our uh, sophistication in the 20th century and go back 1500 years before Christ and think of the ignorances and the superstitions that were in vogue at that time. And here are the Hindus uh, who are a world religion today and they hold that, uh, that here the, an elephant uh, walking on a turtle's back is what held this, this place up. Well, when you go to the Greeks they had their atlases and their Hercules and people like that, the strong men that held the earth up. Uh, when you go to the great uh, scholars among the Greeks, the uh, philosophers, they used to do debate uh, what held the earth up. And somebody would say, this is what holds it up. And then somebody says, well, what holds that up? And then somebody had to come up with what holds that up. Well, then somebody had to come up with what held that up. And so they debated over and over and over as to what held it up, trying to get down to the root cause. All right, when all of that's going on, you have the kind of information that we have uh, in the account by Moses. And another thing he'll, he'll do that uh, it has always been interesting to me, and another good book that uh, I didn't bring up tonight, but the uh, book None of These Diseases by S.I. McMillan, who is a, a conservative Methodist, a medical doctor, and also a believer in the scriptures. But uh, he takes the health code in the Law of Moses that we're going to discuss and says that to fully appreciate that health code, you have to go back to what they believed about health at that time. And the in Egypt, and we keep in mind that the Jews came out of Egypt, and Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. Their health was of such a nature that really the safest thing for you to do if you were sick was to avoid a doctor, because there's a good chance he would have killed you in the process of trying to cure you. And so he gives uh, good examples of the various things that they did that promoted lockjaw and other types of diseases that they had and said then in the midst of all of that ignorance here's the kind of health code that you have uh, in, in the law of Moses so anyway it's a it's a very good book it's easy to read it's good for kids of a high of a high school age and I think this type of thing is good for a high school students to read in the summertime it's also very interesting Egyptians along that time too believed that the earth was like a big room and it was held up by four big huge columns and it's the sky, that the columns go up the sky. Okay. And of course, Moses comes out of that Egyptian background. Okay, and another thing uh, about Genesis 2 is the monotheism that uh, it's, uh, for years, uh, scholars tried to show how the monotheistic religion of the Jews evolved out of the polytheism of that day and how you start out with man believing in many gods and then you evolve to a higher state of his belief in one god but now through archaeology we found out it's just exactly the opposite that when we go back into antiquity we find man believing in one god and that his belief in a plurality is something that evolved out of that in fact uh, all that i know of in the realm of religion that would be considered false has a true premise and then the other evolved from it. Just like, uh, for example, every single solitary religion that we can study in history uh, had a sacrificial system, every one of them, that they killed animals and killed human beings to offer a sacrifice. Well, again, we can see how this easily would break off the true origin itself. 
and and yet you can see that not only do they have it but you can also contrast the things that they did in their sacrificial system like the aztec indians and others with what actually happened uh, uh in in the in the law of moses itself and also the different interpretations it's given to it okay another very good book and by this one here i had as a one a part of a uh textbook in college when i when i took a, a course in archaeology and the bible it's archaeology and bible history by joseph free and he starts at genesis and he comes all the way through the bible and he brings in chronological order the uh various archaeological discoveries up to the point in time that this book was written now there's been a lot a lot of discoveries since this but he does a good job of tying it together uh, showing the various things that are confirmed and the interpretations and things that can be made as a result of this but it's, it's an excellent book and in fact i would guess that uh, at least to the best of my knowledge the colleges that teach archaeology and bible history if they don't use this as their main it's at least one of the texts that they use along with it okay this book here uh, bible uh, study textbook old testament history by smith and he simply takes the history uh, of the old testament and as he deals with it he uses the bible but then at the, at the same time he's using the bible he brings in information from egypt and babylonia and syria and assyria and all the other secular sources including people like josephus later on and then blends it in to one story using the other to help enlighten what we have in the bible but also at the same time showing how that what you have there is in perfect harmony with all the facts that you can nail down from all of the historical service sources uh the man that uh, put this book out is a professor at, at uh, the ozark bible college which is supported by christian churches based right now in uh, cincinnati ohio and he simply taught that subject for a number of years in college developed his notes and everything and this book resulted from that in fact a number of these books resulted from an individual who taught that particular course in college and then over a period of years was persuaded to put his material in in book form okay let's open now to where we finished off last week we covered in the uh first chapter uh some things that we noted is that uh in the first chapter that obviously moses is not striving to give a detailed historical account of everything that happens and anybody that uh, tries to turn genesis into a science book is at least in my judgment doing something that moses never intended uh, not that it's going to conflict with any facts of science or anything of that nature i'm not saying that but i'm saying that moses was not intending to write a science book he was he was intending to say that god created everything he gives the very logical sequential order in which god did it and that was his main emphasis here not to give a detailed not to give a detailed account of how everything happened all the way through there were some things that we could note though as we went through and we noted like the in verse uh, uh, two where the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep that that word was comes from a hebrew word that can be translated was or became and if it is became then we have postulated the possibility of a gap theory in that uh the possibility that god created the heavens and the earth uh that it was here for a long period of time it became then waste and void as a result of changes on this earth and then god began to form it in the way that we have it now not only do we have that word that uh, can be translated either was or became and different some of the translations will put it one way and some the other uh, this one here if you've got the new international version down at the very bottom of the page it says or possibly became and it's just simply a matter of choice as to which one you put there also the those that pose the gap theory will point out that the only time you have this word create is right here in this first verse and throughout the chapter you're dealing with two hebrew words one of them means to bring into existence out of absolute nothing and the other means to form out of things that were already here and the only time you have this word to create bring into existence out of nothing is number one right here after that they're just mecking and that's the hebrew word and then we get down to man when god created man in his own image 
and then we come back to the same word to bring something in, into existence again. All right, we noted as we went through here, though, once we get started, uh, after the possibility of the gap theory, and again, I say that as a possibility, uh, it may or may not be so. Uh, personally, I believe the evidence is very strong. Uh, I think that uh, the evidence, to my mind, uh, is indicative of the fact that I, I believe that the Earth has been here longer than a few thousand years. I think the, the evidence is just simply too strong. Uh, even when you take into consideration things being created full-grown and everything like that, that I think the evidence is, is too strong, at least, at least to my mind. How long, I don't know, but I, I believe it's, it's been here longer than a few thousand years. I do know that, as we discussed last week, the belief uh, postulated by Bishop Usher, uh, 4004 B.C., that in the 1500s, that's already been proven fallacious, and we know that his reasoning was inaccurate in the way he used the genealogical tables. And now, uh, even leaving the Bible and dealing not with theory, but with hardcore fact, uh, you can put mankind here in the way that we know man today for a minimum of about 10,000 years. In other words, forgetting about theory, but it just is absolute fact that you can nail down so far as man living in a civilized way, uh, recording history and things of this nature, uh, we can put him here right at, at about 10,000 years. All right, then though, after we get into that first chapter and we see the making of things in the way that we have them now, there is something else that's factual, and that is that, at least to my mind, the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to, to make it clear that uh, you're talking about 24-hour days for those six days. I, I can't make any sense out of the evening and the morning was day one, the evening and the morning was day two, the evening and the morning was day three. Uh, in fact, that is why the Jew, to this day, divides his day up contrary to ours to the evening and the morning. And it went back. Another thing, when you go back and read Jewish history, and you read from Jewish scholars going back to the time of Christ and before Christ and all down through the years, all through the centuries, before Jesus, the time of Jesus, and all through, Jewish scholars and the Jews themselves always understood that as six literal days. In other words, if Moses intended to convey anything other than six literal days, he missed the boat because they always understood it that way and nobody even thought of it any other way until the uh, putting forth of the theory of organic evolution and then individuals going back and trying to accommodate that with this. But it was never even thought of in any other way. And then also we get to the end like we did last week where uh, come over to chapter 2, the seventh day God finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested, and God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because he rested from all the work of creating. And we know that from the very first then, a seventh day is set forth as blessed and hallowed and holy, and we know that the Jews uh, observed the sixth literal days and the seventh day as a day of rest in commemoration of this. Okay, now, does anybody have any comment over anything that uh, uh, we've covered thus far in that first chapter? Any comment or, or question? Okay, and the fact that man was made in, you know, is to be made in the image of God. Hold your place there and flip over here to the New Testament in uh, 1 Peter 4 and verse 6. Uh, let's see, First Peter 4 and verse 6. This is the reason the good news was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So when man sin, it's the body that dies as far as it's going to cease and go back to the ground, but then he lives in, in live according to God in, the, in his spirit. All right, now, back up to Hebrews 12 and verse 9. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? So God is the Father of our spirit 
uh, it's even even at death it's the body to die it's the spirit returns to God who gave it uh, the part of us that's made in the image of God is our spirit and now the only reason we point out those passages is that uh, I didn't know this to, I forget how many years back there had been all that many that the uh, some groups like for example the Mormons actually think of God in a physical way and look at the physical man as being made in the in the image of God but they think of God with with physical properties in fact again they go to passages in the Bible where uh, we have a language that is not literal such as the eyes of God and the arms of God and things of that nature and they actually come up with uh, man in his physical body as, as made in the image of God okay now uh, chapter 2 uh, look there again at verse 1 the heavens and the earth were completed and then look at verse 4 this is the account of the heavens when the, and the earth when they were created we noted that this is the first tablet okay this is the first tablet and the statement there and we find this all through Genesis this is the account of the heavens and the earth and then we come on over and we'll see that the next tablet will end over here in chapter 5 and 1 chapter 5 and 1 this is a written account of Adam's line and what that is doing is identifying that particular tablet is belonging to Adam and he's giving you the written account of his line all right then notice again and look at verse 9 of chapter 6 this is the account of Noah okay so that's letting you know that particular account is the account of Noah okay we'll get the others as we come to them suffice it to say the first break there and Moses then is taking these tablets and putting them together uh, and those who are fluent in Hebrew uh, can point out the difference in the spelling of words and the languages on these ta tablets as they're put together okay uh, in chapter uh, 2 we go back and we have the uh, creation account again it makes it obvious that uh, what we have in the first chapter was stating everything from an overall perspective and now he drops back in the second chapter and becomes very specific and there's several things here that's interesting to me like when you come down to verse 5 of chapter 2 no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth okay on the one hand you have the statement in uh, Genesis as if you know whammo you have got everything created full grown you know your trees your vegetation everything like that but the indication from that verse is that the seed was there and then you had the rain and then you had the growth and so the, the statement there the that uh, uh, no shrub of the field had yet appeared no plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth it was no man to work the ground okay and then of course when we read the account we can see that the vegetation was first light of the sun and the moon becoming visible was was right after that and of course we know that really there is nothing without the sun and the moon that all light for its uh, continuing or in, existing in any form depends on the power, power from the sun, the sun there so again uh, what I see when I those two chapters I don't see enough information for me to get very dogmatic and specific on a lot of things and I can see how that he just seems to back up here now and uh, give a little more detail uh, that fits into a general account that's there okay another interesting thing look at this second chapter again he locates the Garden of Eden and he names the rivers and come on down to the 14th verse the name of the third river is the Tigris okay and then the fourth river is the Euphrates and these other two uh, the in the commentaries that I've read on that they think on them as two smaller than actually have derived from the Tigris and the Euphrates River but anyway the interesting thing is that again leaving the Bible and going to archaeology that uh, that is a in fact from the statements that we even have in the textbooks at school starting in the elementary level that we now look at civilization and secular archaeology and history says that civilization sprung into existence in Mesopotamia 
between the Tigris and Euphrates River and that from there in fact in the seventh grade book I remember that I used to teach from that the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, the Nile uh, the Indus River the Ganges River up in China these are referred to as the four cradles of civilization the Wang Ho I should say the level the Yellow River up in China but these are referred to as the four cradles of civilization with the Tigris and Euphrates being the oldest and so it's interesting that what we have here, written 1,500 years before Christ, or I should say at least put down by Moses 1,500 years before Christ, is in perfect harmony with what we now have the facts to be, so far as man popping into existence and civilization being there and him spreading out from, from that point. Okay, we also have it in the, whereas in the first chapter, it said God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he them, male and female created he them, but then in the second chapter, we have God uh, creating man, and then we have him naming the animals, and we have him uh, coming to the realization that there is no help meet for him. There's nobody there that's suitable for a mate for him. And then God then taking woman from man. Uh, the word Adam itself simply means man. Uh, woman means taken from man. That's the literal Eve, mother of all living, the literal meaning of the word itself. Okay, the, uh, another thing to note about this Garden of Eden that's mentioned, uh, the word paradise is a Persian word that means Garden of Eden. And it'll become important later on in a spiritual sense because when Jesus, for example, tells the thief on the cross, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise, uh, at that time, paradise, which meant to them Garden of Eden, that was the, their best experience on this earth, and so it came to be used in a figurative sense of the abode of the righteous in the spiritual realm. But the literal meaning of, of the word paradise, which is simply garden, and gar, gar, referring to the Garden of Eden. Okay, uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, to me that makes sense where um, verse 2 in chapter, verse 4 in chapter 2, ends that tablet, I, until you brought that out, I had never had that pointed out to me before. And it, it makes sense because he talks about where God created man and woman in verse 1, and then it's like he's just restating it, or he's picked it up later, or another author has done it when he goes into him making man again in verse 2. Right. And I know I always read that, and it, it didn't seem to flow like one man was writing it, and, you know, right. that, that he would have put it more together, you know, instead of stating it like it was stated. Right. There's just not a real smooth continuity from that first to the second chapter. Right. And he right. states there and then he comes right ahead. But that uh, and of course from Moses' standpoint he's got it, he's got two tablets there. Yeah. And he just simply puts uh, both tablets together. Might have yeah. been a period of time between writing the two, probably was. Yeah. Yeah. And also we noted like last week that uh, on the tablets themselves, whereas we in our um, writing put the author generally first and the title and all in antiquity they did just the opposite they just started writing and then at the conclusion they told you who the author was and um, in, in their tablets they would just simply have the writing and then whoever that tablet belonged to would be the one whose name would be there it didn't matter whether somebody else wrote it didn't matter whether uh, he hired a scribe to do it or what the person who owned the tablet is the one that had his name on on the end Okay, let's look over then in that uh, in the second chapter then. Is there anybody with any any verse you'd like to bring out, anything that we've missed? In the King James Bible, whenever it has uh, a decal there, it has the Euphrates River translated Euphrates, but instead of the Tigris, it has something like uh, okay. a high decal or something like that. Okay, it's, it's referring to the, uh, the uh, Tigris, though. They just it. call it something yeah. else at one yeah. time. In fact, uh, one of the things that we find with the names that we, as we go through here, is some of these places where they, they're talking about the same place, which you're just using a different language, but they're talking talking about the same place. I think another thought that comes to people's mind a lot of times uh, in verse 17, where he says, "The day that you eat of it, you'll surely die." A lot of people say, well, Adam and Eve didn't die that day. But it's good to point out that they did die spiritually. They were separated from God, and they began to die physically. Okay, and there again, we get back to our thinking on the word death. 
we think of death as cessation, where the literal meaning of the word death is just simply to separate. And for example, in the Greek, it's the word thanatos. And every time you read the word death in the Bible, you can just put word. In fact, I wish they put separate, because that's the literal meaning of the word. And so the day that he ate, he was separated from God. And of course, the, uh, the, 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 what we call death is no more than the separation of the spirit from the body. And that, that's all it is. And then when Adam died, he simply was separated from God. Also, we can see something in that, in that when man dies, we have this separation from God, and then we begin to have a deterioration that sets in so far as man is concerned and the earth. And yet it's interesting that God in his foreknowledge built in a lot of protection. For example, that uh, obviously we get to the point that uh, where Cain marries and Abel marries and all, Cain obviously married his sister, that uh, Adam and Eve were the mother of all living, and brothers married sisters, and that went on for a multitude of years. Well, again, the only reason for that being wrong is for biological reasons. I mean, you try to think of another reason for it being wrong, except biological reasons, and that's it. And so at the first, uh, w without any uh, uh, recessive genes or anything of that nature, there's just absolutely no problem. But then it's interesting that as problems would come about over the years, as man is separated from God, he's going to do things to help hasten the destruction of his own body and the environment he's in and all, that God actually has a built-in protection system with our genes, and so that the stronger or dominant ones will, will overrule. But here, of course, it just they, there was just simply the brother and, and sister. We do not have the deterioration. Also, in these early years, we find out that uh, man is here for, obviously, longer periods of time than later on. But I might add that, something else here. There's, uh, it's pointed out sometimes that, uh, that back at, in antiquity, that they did not measure time in the same kind of 12-month year that we do now. And in fact, even a Jew uh, up to, uh, at the time of Christ, his year was 354 days, uh, not, not 365 days. And then when you go back in antiquity, there were some groups that measured a person's lifespan by months, and he was so many moons old, and there were other groups in antiquity that measured them by seasons, okay? And so that... Uh, there are those that believe that it's a possibility that, that these lives are not as much greater in length than we think. Uh, personally, I think the evidence is indicative of a longer lifespan, and it, uh, because although we have this knowledge from antiquity, Moses, one author, is putting this all together, and uh, he uses the term years, and he was familiar with the calendar more in keeping with what we know now, they divided up into the 12-month period, and all of a sudden, right after the flood, life becomes just immensely shorter. And then by the time of Abraham, 100 years, is a, is a very old man. But the fact that it's all being put together by Moses, and he understands the 12-month calendar, and then another thing, too, when we read uh, the accounts of other people, the Babylonians, Sumerians, and others, that they, too, way back in antiquity, had these very long ages. And then they just we can follow them getting shorter as, as time goes on. And uh, another theory that uh, would help to and maybe help to explain or at least show the possibility of much longer lifespans uh, from a strictly scientific point of view is the canopy theory. And that is the uh, uh, remember when you start in Genesis you have the waters above the earth separated from the waters beneath. We know now, for example, that the ozone layer protects us from the sun. We know that the number one aging factor on our skin and, and all is the ultraviolet rays from the sun, and we know the effect that radiation has on killing our bodies, and it's not just in the TV set or, or anyplace else. It's all in our environment, and it definitely uh, has a killing effect on our bodies. Well, before the flood, it's believed that in the canopy theory, that, uh, that the earth was changed drastically with the flood itself, and that there was a time when you had a much wider ozone layer than what we have right now, and a greater buffer. And so the end result was that when the sun hit that, we had uh, much more protection from the ultraviolet rays, and, uh, ultraviolet rays, and also there's more of a diffusion of the heat 
and the light, and so that you really don't have a north and south pole as we know it now, that the earth at one time would have had a climate that was moderate all over. Well, again, the evidence for that is the fact that we find uh, animals that depend on this moderate climate, there's skeletons of them, literally all over the earth. And, and so that uh, there, and there's other evidences too, but suffice to say there is evidence there that at one time the earth was quite a bit different. Another thing is that we now know, for example, that there's no question, dinosaurs lived on this earth, you know, that, uh, that's, that's a fact. Well, in order for those animals to get that big, they had to live in a situation that was conducive for living long lives. In other words, that in, in the environment as we have it now, the dinosaurs that we dig up, knowing what we know them, could not exist. They just simply could not live and grow and live long enough to get that big. But they had to live at a time when they could live. And so even the dinosaurs themselves and the type of environment they lived in uh, testify of a time when uh, lifespan was quite a bit longer than what we know of it right now. And again, I think one thing to keep in mind, I just uh, really believe we make a mistake sometimes when we be dogmatic when we're dogmatic in areas where we really don't have all the information because anytime we're dogmatic and we don't have all the information and then when science comes along and, and shoots that dogmatic statement down it's the Bible that looks bad when in reality the problem is not the Bible it was our, our interpretation and so I think it's better to say that you know this theory is a possibility in light of the facts that we have uh, more facts may come and moderate that somewhat or give us a much better understanding but no matter what they uncover you don't do any injustice. I don't know of anything that anybody's going to uncover that uh, would do an injustice to what we have right here. Okay, in the uh, third chapter, uh, we have the serpent and the, uh, the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, this word that's translated serpent in chapter 3 comes from a Hebrew word that we really don't know the meaning of. The reason that our English translators put serpent there is because of the penalty that was passed on. But keep in mind, even when that penalty is passed on, this creature, that's what he was after the curse. Obviously, that Eve wasn't disturbed that this creature was talking to her. And then, of course, later on in the New Testament, we know that Jesus refers to the devil as the serpent and uses it to depict the devil. By the way, the same word is translated serpent. It's also translated crocodile and several other things throughout the Old Testament. We literally do not know the meaning of the word and we just simply look at the context and do the best that we can with it. What is the Hebrew word? All right, it's a nahash. Nahash is the Hebrew word. And uh, we just, it's used in, in, in a number of different ways and not with enough context. In other words, we don't have, we, we determine the meaning of all words by looking at them in their context and all. And we just simply do not have it in sufficient enough context to be absolutely concrete with the, with the word itself. And so scholars have already always debated on it. Adam Clark, in his commentary, uh, has a very good discourse on it. In fact, uh, uh, he believes it was, uh, he goes back into the very root meaning of the word and believes it was, a, in other words, a creature that, an ape-type creature that walked on two legs and things of that nature. And he has his argument for that as far as the study of the language. But it's something that's always been debated because we really don't know. And so there again, when you see the pictures of a snake coiled around a tree talking to Adam and Eve, and somebody is looking at that from a scientific point of view and say, how does that snake talk? You know, that uh, everything about it would have to be a miracle and all that, well, first of all, that could be. But there again, somebody in trying to simplify something, somebody may really be discrediting what is here. And, and I think sometimes it's a problem that in trying to simplify uh, an abstract message and get it down to where everybody can perfectly have it in black and white, we run the risk of doing an injustice to the material that's there. And so uh, Satan uh, used the creature as a tool there. What exactly the creature looked like, you and I can just speculate. But we do know that he wasn't disturbed when he talked to her. Okay, in the uh, garden, there was the tree of the knowledge of uh, right and wrong, and then there, there was the tree that... Uh, uh, of eternal life where they ate and had their life and he told them when they ate of this one tree that uh, they would know right and wrong uh, that was right I don't believe that there was anything mystical about whatever it is that she ate that caused her to now know right and wrong 
if you have never done anything wrong, then you've never experienced guilt. Uh, your conscience condemns you at the point that you do something that you perceive as wrong. This was the only thing that God had told them not to do. And that was it. He told them not to do it, whatever it was. And they did it. And so when they did it, what they would have felt is exactly what we feel when we do something that we really know is wrong. And, and, so, and, and so however far back that, that we can go in our own experience, where we first began to do things that we honestly believe was wrong, and then that, that little feeling that we had is guilt. Well, Adam and Eve had never experienced that. For the first time they disobeyed God, for the first time they experienced guilt. And so they now know right from wrong uh, in, the, in the sense of guilt within themselves. Okay, uh, God appears to them. It, it's like that before this sin, there was a direct relationship and between God and Adam and Eve, and uh, they conversed with God, and now they're going to be separated. And this, this relationship is not going to be as direct anymore as a result of that. And then we can read where uh, what God uh, does to the woman. And, uh, and again, uh, so many things there that are logical to my mind. I mean, after all, God made us. The woman in childbearing has tremendous pain. And, you know, you ask the question, given already the established evidence for God, why would he make you so there's you know, such tremendous pain and all of that? And, and he tells us that was to be a reminder of, of the sin that took place there. Again with man, when he says, Cursed be the ground and all, we can ask the question, why briars and thorns? And, and why uh, so hard to eke out a living and earn your living by the sweat of your brow and all? And it's a constant reminder of the fact that God really didn't intend it that way, that man brought uh, all of this on himself through his disobedience to God, and God separated himself from man. <coughs> Anybody with any other uh, question or comment on anything through those third ch three chapters? It's interesting how each of them had an excuse, just like we do today. You know, Eve definitely had hers, and Adam had... He is also. Another thing Paul brings in that's interesting in the New Testament, and that is he says that Eve was deceived, Adam was not, and thereby the indication that Adam willfully, uh, put pre in a premeditated way, put himself in the same position with Eve, that she had broke the relationship, and then Adam went ahead and, and did the same thing. But Paul makes a big point on the fact that, that she was deceived, and then Adam followed in in a willful, premeditated way. Okay, in the uh, fourth chapter, uh, we begin to see some interesting things in the way that Genesis is, is given to us. We've got the mention of Cain and Abel and the offering before God. So obviously then, the sacrifice that would point the way to Christ is given to man from the very beginning. And then we have Seth mentioned after Cain kills Abel. We have the statement that Adam and Eve were the mother of all living and the indication that no telling how many people came from that relationship. And then, of course, we've got brothers and sisters that marry. But the interesting thing about the account is that the account will always zero in on those individuals that were important to bringing Christ to the world. And so... Jesus will come through the lineage of Seth. And uh, we read about Cain only because he killed Abel. Abel was obviously the chosen one there. He was the one that was faithful to God. Cain killed him, and so then God gives him Seth. And as we go through Genesis, those individuals will be zeroed in, and you'll only read about others to the extent that they come in contact with them. And it's just like when we get to Israel, the only reason you read about the Babylonians and the Syrians, etc., is to the extent they come in contact with Israel. And so the whole history then, beginning in Genesis all the way through, is really a history, not of the whole world, but it's a history specifically of those choice individuals and later nation that God used to prepare the world for Christ. And the only way you read, reason you read about anything else is to the extent they came in contact with it. And so I think it's good to keep in mind and good to point out to others 
it's not intended to be a detailed history of, of, of mankind, but it's a detailed history, not detailed, but a history of, of Cain and Abel. Okay, another interesting thing from a standpoint of uh, the historicity of what we're covered, remember that uh, Jesus uh, mentions Cain and Abel, refers to Cain as the first murderer, and Abel is the first righteous man that's killed in Matthew 23. Uh, when Jesus talks about marriage and divorce, he goes back and quotes verbatim uh, from Genesis 1 and 2. And then also Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam and Eve by, by way of Seth. And then when Moses talks, not Moses, but uh, Paul talks about the husband-wife relationship and the man-woman relationship, he goes back to Adam and Eve in the beginning. Uh, suffice it to say that, that all in the New Testament, with Jesus himself and with the documents after this, all of this we're reading is, is accepted as a perfect historical account. And so I say to con contrast that with anybody that would put it in the myth category, that as we mentioned last week, all of the evidence that stands behind the resurrection of Jesus also stands behind the, the historicity of this, because he, he endorsed it. And all the evidence that stands behind these prophets that handle it, every one of them endorsed this as a literal historical account and continue this all the way through the Old Testament, that all the evidence that stands behind Moses, the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles stands behind the historicity of this because the, the, they endorsed this and accepted it in that way. Why do you think that God um, looked with favor on Abel's offering but not on Cain's? Do you think that that was because God had told him exactly what to do to offer and Cain didn't? Or do you think that Cain's attitude or his life wasn't what okay. it should be? Uh, in our background, we've been taught, you know, about the one did exactly. He said, mm -hmm. offer this, and he did, and he said, offer that. But it says by faith, you know, Abel offered and everything like that. Uh, my understanding is that Abel, he did, obviously. He, he did. He, he did exactly what he was supposed to and everything. But I'm saying his faith and trust was in God and in that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. uh, Cain just simply wasn't pleasing to God. He, doesn't, he did not do it by faith. Uh, his trust was, was not in God. And see, when uh, they've, I've heard them say that, well, Abel offered the animal sacrifice and Cain offered the fruit of the ground. Well, Cain was a farmer and Abel was, yeah. a, Abel was a shepherd. It looks and like said, God's playing favoritism. Right. But, and they say, well, all God would take was the animal. But then when we come to the sacrifices all the way down to Moses, we find that they offered animals and also uh, vegetation as, as sacrifice to God. And, uh, for example, when uh, a child was born, they could redeem it if the family was uh, wealthy enough. They offered a lamb without blemish. If they were poor, they offered two turtle doves. For example, when you read about Jesus' parents offering two turtle doves, it lets you know they were a poor family. If they were in poverty, then they offered grain. In other words, if they couldn't afford the other, they offered grain, but they gave what it was that they, that they had. And so the big thing, there's no question that anybody that's walking in faith is obviously going to do whatever God asked in the way he said do it but obviously Cain's heart wasn't right he didn't really have his trust in God and it seems to me that in order for that sacrifice to mean anything so far as what was eventually going to take place that person would have to have his trust in that with the recognition that hey I've sinned and this is an atonement for my sin and I'm trusting on this uh, as the atonement for my sin and what it pointed to. Although how much they understood about what it pointed to, you know, we don't really know. Obviously, from verse 7, he said, the Lord says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Right. Talking to Cain. So apparently, whatever it was, it wasn't right. right and he apparently knew Cain understood right. what he'd yeah. done wrong. Right. In fact, uh, he was given the opportunity to do what is right. He just simply uh, didn't do it. I think he might have not offered the best of his crops. Possibly. That's a possibility, Jack. Because it said Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, just mm -hmm. not not the best. And then it said Abel brought fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Okay, that's, that's a real good observation, Jack, that, that the sacrifice would always be the very best that mm -hmm. they had. And just like when they offered the animals, they didn't offer the lame or anything. It would be the very best. And I think it's a good observation that 
And in that, you really show an attitude right. as much as anything. Any other uh, comment or question? Okay, as we follow the, uh, the lineage of Cain, it's interesting. We, we see what kind of a person Cain is and what about his lineage? Yeah, just about the same. And we began, began, to see, began to see the influence of parents in rearing children. Uh, Abel, uh, Dias, Seth is given to replace. The people of God will pretty well be limited to the descendants of Seth. Okay, now, coming over to chapter 5, verse 1. This is a written account of Adam's life. Okay? And so he's saying, here we got another account. Uh, and this, again, one that belonged to Adam. Okay, now... Come on over to the sixth chapter. We've had the birth of Noah. Uh, it mentions his sons. And then uh, in the sixth chapter, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. All right. That, uh, and they began to intermarry. And then we have problems. And what I... The only way I can understand that when it talks about the sons of God, the daughters of men, is that those people that were following God, such as the descendants of Seth, began to intermarry with those that were not following and worshiping God, and then we have the problem that happens afterwards. And this, again, is something that I believe is taught all the way through and, and into the New Testament. I believe believers in God should marry believers in God. And that's a, it, we see the, the effect here. Under the law of Moses, it will be commanded. And, and to my mind, from a Christian standpoint, it really doesn't even make sense. If you're a lover of God and you want his will propagated, then why go out here actually not have a relationship with somebody that is? Go out here and pick somebody who is not a believer in God and have them for a mate. That's something that I've heard all kinds of arguments. It's just not logical to my mind that uh, uh, I don't know of an important, more important decision that a person makes than marriage itself. And for somebody to go out and, and pick a mate, if you honestly love God yourself, and to pick a mate uh, who does not even believe in God, that, that just doesn't make sense to me. And so here, why did they do it? They looked on the women and they were beautiful. And so that uh, uh, the flesh saw what they wanted and, and took it regardless of the spiritual and then we began to have the corruption that is that literally will cause God to destroy the world at that time. Now, as we have the flood, keep in mind at this because there's a big argument that comes about now, and we're not going to settle that argument. We're just going to present information. The big argument is, did the flood literally cover the entire earth as we know it? Or was it a local phenomenon? Well, first of all, we make the observation that it did not take a worldwide event to wipe out mankind. Mankind is right here in Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and Euphrates River, right over in that area. He just that's where he's at. And so it would take now it may have been, I'm not saying that there wasn't a worldwide that covered. I'm saying it would not take a worldwide flood. Next, what you have here, as you read these tablets, when you come over here, let's see, where's the uh, uh, next tablet, let's see, uh, 6, 9, and 10, 1. 6, 9, this is the account of Noah. And then you come over here to uh, 10 and 1. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay? You have here not the Holy Spirit dictating verbatim to Moses. You have an account written by Noah and then an account written by his sons. And they're telling you exactly what happened and what God told them and what they did. And so when you read about that flood, you're reading about it being described by an eyewitness. Just like when you read Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you're reading the events as eyewitnesses describe them. And when you read the other material, you're reading the events as either a person gathered from eyewitnesses or he witnessed himself. And the Holy Spirit was responsible for the accuracy of the record itself. And so the world to the people at this day 
was not like the world is to us. And we know, of course, as we pursue history on down, nobody knew about America over here in, in that part of the world. The world to them was much smaller than it is to us today. And so when you read about all of the hills and the mountains covered with water and everything, maybe it is the entire world. But what I'm saying is the text does not absolutely 100% demand it because the writer is telling you that everything, in other words, from his standpoint, the whole world was covered with water. Everything he saw was covered with water. And keep in mind, humanity is just in that small area. Now, the reason I think this can be an important thing, and keep in mind now, I'm not saying that it was not a universal worldwide flood. It may very well have been. But I'm saying the text does not demand it. And I think we have to be careful that we make it demand something that it does not and maybe science will come along and dogmatically prove that there has not been a worldwide catastrophe, that, that all over the world we have, there's no area that has not had local floods, and that that thing has happened all over the world, but the, that science may do that. On the other hand, science may prove dogmatically that there has been a worldwide catastrophe. Right now, from a scientific point of view, it's in the theory category. There are those that theorize a worldwide catastrophe of the world being covered by flood. There are those that say no, that the evidence just simply is not there. Uh, I know that uh, John Clayton does not believe by any stretch of the imagination that there is conclusive evidence to a worldwide event. And for example, when uh, he looks at the Grand Canyon, he's got, that uh, he points out that uh, that, that canyon uh, the very nature of it, when you look at it all the way down and consider the rock structure, it was not formed in a short period of time. And he describes the differences between the sediment rock that's formed in a short period of time and sediment that is formed over the centuries. And he points out that, uh, and, and he also points out in dealing with that, that he, he doesn't agree with the organic evolutionists that there's billions of years involved there or millions or anything of that nature. Uh, and that he just simply states that that you cannot scientifically say that that was formed in a short period, that all evidence is that that canyon was formed over a period of centuries. Not the amount of years given by the organic evolutionists, but definitely many more, much more time that you would have in the flood itself. And uh, this is true not only with Grand Canyon, but by, with other places. And so I think this is important to note, again, not trying to uh, uh, hurt anybody's faith or anything of that nature because no, nothing's being challenged. But it's important to note that we don't make a dogmatic statement that maybe will be proven false when the text itself is of such a nature that it really doesn't demand it. And, and let's just let the, for, the evidence that will be forthcoming tell here. Tim? Didn't he, doesn't he say something about uh, in the Great Lakes up there, the, some type of thing where the magnetic fields, you go down so far and so many layers, the magnetic fields are pointing one way and you go down a little farther and they're pointing the opposite direction and it doesn't even relate that to the flood and everything. Yeah, I can't, but I don't remember I all can't, the details. I can't remember what it was, but I mean, so I guess he thinks it covered America and everything, just not to... Well, well, he, he uses that to show that there are uh, examples. There, There's a lot of evidence to show that things are not always, have not always been like they are right. today. That there, there's evidence for catastrophic events, right? And uh, this reversal of the magnetic field is what he's talking about. And there's a theory that if the magnetic field reversed, that there could, it could cause a lot of water. There's a lot of hydrogen ions, uh, I guess, suspended because of the magnetic field. And if that collapsed, those ions would would uh, could form water with oxygen molecules, and there would be a, a huge amount of water that could fall from that. Yeah, and it would have to take something like that because now the science would say now that if every last bit of the moisture that's in the air fell to the earth, that we'd get two inches of rain over the entire over the entire world. That you don't you don't have uh, the moisture there to just simply flood the in the entire world in a sense. And so if you're gonna have a universal flood, then you're gonna have something like you're talking about there. But in either case, the evidence simply is not 100% that you can present some very good evidence for an actual universal flood. You can also present some very good evidence that you've had a lot of local floods all over the earth, but that the evidence is against the other. 
And so, and then when we go to the text, that when we keep in mind that we're, we've got something written by Noah and his sons, and the fact that mankind, keep in mind, we, we ask ourselves the question, what was the purpose of the flood? Destroy man. Destroy man. That, except for Noah and his But where was man? He's right over here. And, and, and so he's in, he's in a very small area. And so I'm saying that God would not have had to uh, cover the entire earth with water in order to destroy man. He just simply didn't have to. All right, another thing that uh, it's interesting to me that uh, Lamsa uh, does not believe in the, and he's, he's a devout believer, but does not believe in the universal flood. And he goes back in, into the stories as that all the way through the century, the Syrian Christians, going all the way back to the first century now, have never believed in it. They've always looked at that as a local event in Mesopotamia. And keep in mind, he's from that area, and from Syria. And the when you go back through history, uh, Jews believed it both ways. And I'm talking about a long time before anybody ever heard of the theory of evolution or anything of that nature. It was believed both ways. But I'm saying, so scholars all through the centuries uh, have debated that thing. And the Syrian church uh, that exists over in that area has looked on it as a global event for, for that particular area. Uh, some observation that Lamsa makes is that Noah was to get animals by twos and by sevens, the clean and the unclean, to put in the ark. And he pointed out how did, uh, you know, what about the animals in China and, and, and America, these various animals that were, you know, did, uh, how did Noah go about, you know, that getting animals to come from all of the earth in order to put in there, but that he could, in his own environment, get two of the clean and, and seven of the other and, and put in there. And his point, again, is that in maybe making this say something that it doesn't say, we create an impossibility that science will totally blow up, you know. And so it's best to look at, look at it in its historical setting. But I think he makes some good observations on it. Wasn't it two of the unclean and seven of the clean? Yeah. What did I say? The opposite? Yeah. Two of the two of the unclean and seven of the clean, so we have some for the sacrifices. You know, an interesting thing to me on this kind of thing, too, uh, just like with Clayton, because I, I have a lot of respect for him, and I think it's uh, it bothers me what some have said and, and things of that nature, that so often people will have an interpretation, and they equate their interpretation with the actual word itself in such a way that to challenge their interpretation makes you an unbeliever in the Bible, and, and which is ridiculous. And by the way, that we, uh, the premillennialists, do that to those of us who don't believe it. They believe in premillennialism because of passages that we believe are figurative, they believe are literal. And so because we reject their interpretation, they challenge our belief in the Bible itself. And, but it is, it, it is interesting to me that a lot of times somebody has an interpretation, and then if you don't believe that interpretation, then you don't believe the Bible. And you're, you're some sort of a way out liberal. Okay, in the account of the flood in itself and the, uh, uh, the putting the animals on, uh, the length of time, anything about the ark, is there any, uh, any comments anybody has or any questions? <clears throat> okay, in Genesis 10 and verse 1, uh, after uh, there's by the way a prophecy given there at the end of the ninth chapter in verse uh, 26 blessed be the Lord God of Shem may Canaan be a slave to Shem and may God extend the territory of Japheth uh, the uh, in the south the old south when they had slavery this passage was sometimes used uh, to justify their slavery and that uh, we were thought of as the descendants of Shem, and of course the uh, uh, the Negro of the Canaanites, and it said it was prophesied by God. It goes back to this particular penalty that was put on Canaan for what he did. This prophecy, as we follow it down, was fulfilled. The Jews uh, come from the Semite, Semites come from Shem, and the uh, from Canaan. We have uh, Ham, Canaan, and the Egyptians, the, the people in the land of Canaan, come from that lineage, and we'll pursue it on down. This will be fulfilled when the Hebrews leave uh, Egypt and go into the land of Canaan and conquer the land of Canaan and subject those people to them. 
And then that will be the fulfillment of that particular passage. It sure had absolutely nothing to do with uh, the black or the white race or didn't deal with it in any sense. Is that the only um, reason for thinking that the blacks were the descendants of Canaan? It's just because of this saying that they were to be the slaves of Shem? Or is there some evidence that they were black? No, they were, in that kind of thing, the, uh, they were just basically looking for a passage to justify slavery. Mm -hmm. And so they went back to this right here. The black people, uh, there, there is, we'll see the breakdown and as they descend and all, but it really, uh, so far as the color, has absolutely nothing to do with anything that's said here. The color will tie in only because of the uh, the geography. Right. They should be the same. It's just if the Canaanites were around the equator or something more, right? right then they right. would be black because they should, you know, with the same ancestry, they should be the sure. same. Sure. You have all of them coming with the, from these, these three families. Mm. Okay, the table of the nations given then in chapter 10. He says this again, the, the tablet here. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So he's telling us that account then is, is the tablet that belongs to these three brothers. And then he begins to describe the uh, Japhethites, the Hamites, and then he'll come down to Shem. Most of the attention will be on Shem because that uh, from him will come the Israelites. Okay, let's, uh, for tonight now, does anybody have any question or comment on those first uh, ten chapters? Okay, what we'll do, we'll start next week then with the 11th chapter. And uh, <clears throat> let's take it uh, through Abraham, okay? Take it from the 11th chapter and come all the way through uh, uh, Abraham, up to the death of Abraham, okay? I want to know about this gold in chapter 2. The name of the first, you know, talking about the four rivers, is Tyson. That is which uh, compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Okay. Why don't we go get that gold? <laughs> I imagine it's already been gotten. <laughs> uh, well, that's like on the way to Egypt and all that stuff. I mean, what they they all right, now, keep in mind, <coughs> as uh, Moses put that down, he was identifying it, and they definitely related to it. You know, but, uh, and by the way, there's anything left there. Huh? What's the left thing? So they didn't have the mining techniques we have now, Dad. Yeah, I'm, I think you'd get a bunch of money. Pretty good job. They used to have a lot of gold in California, but they're not they're not mining it now. They did a good job of digging it all out. Yeah, but I mean, these are old-time people were the last ones, I think, to try to get the gold there. Oh, gold. I bet there's still a lot there. Another scheme. That's this one, the next million dollar. After the fish. Yeah. After the, yeah, after I make my million. After you make a million? Tropical fish are my new thing, Dad. I'm breeding tropical fish now. <laughs> oh, well, I'm serious, yes. I have two pregnant mollies and, and, and 